Uh, this is Tony uh, Barnes. Tony and Aaron. Aaron, will you stand? And um, Wilberforce, does he have anything to say? Might cry. Might cry. Okay. Tony and Aaron are part of the vineyard for a long, long time uh, before uh, they were called out to minister at another church and have recently be, been working with YWAM and will be going on mission with YWAM. So I asked Tony to come and share God's heart for mission. And um, so we're really blessed to have Tony with us. And I just want to pray for you. Father, thank you that Tony and Aaron are here. Thank you for them, for Wilberforce. Thank you, God, for your blessing on them and the blessing that we have to receive them back. Now I ask, Lord, that you fill Tony again with your Holy Spirit. Release the word of God through him and open our minds and hearts that we might receive and not just hear, but do. So Holy Spirit, come and and give all that you want to give to us through Tony. Bless him in the giving in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. We, my wife and I, my wife spent a lot more time in the church than I did, but I spent a couple years as well. And we were just super blessed by being here. I had a lot of people invest in me, Doug Hall and Steve Sargent and Jacqueline Furness, and like really came into a greater knowledge of the love of God for me. And, um, and Aaron had, uh, Lori Orander and many others invest in her. And so I feel like we credit this place for the laughter that's in our house a lot of the time, so we're just uh, so honored to be here. And today, um, Randy asked me to speak on mission, and I want to focus on evangelism and the importance of evangelism, especially in the hour that we live. And so I, I believe that God is calling uh, the church to re-pioneer America um, through evangelism. I just believe it's the hour. I believe that there are many who don't know the message of salvation. They don't know the gospel. Um, more and more, if you encounter a teenager on the street, they don't understand uh, how to be saved, and they desire to hear it. And so I want to talk about uh, why evangelism is essential for the hour that we live. And uh, the first point that I want to make is uh, the world's desperate need in light of God's holiness and his zeal to punish sin. So it's pretty intense. So I just want to read out of Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people, to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So I just want to pray. Jesus, I just ask that you would come and... uh, undo any callousness that we have, God, any um, lack of sobriety that we have about eternal consequences of our response to you, God. I just pray today, Jesus, would you come and magnify your name. We just pray that you'd break our heart for the lost. God, I pray you'd show us what's at stake, God. Pray you'd uh, put your fire in us, God, to share this message, God, with the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So in light of verses like these that are throughout the New Testament, um, I just want the Holy Spirit to just show us today that evangelism isn't a nice thing to do, but it is an extremely loving thing to do. And in light of eternity, it's the thing that's um, most loving is to share how people can know Jesus, how people can be freed from sin, how people can escape the eternal consequences of not knowing Jesus. Uh, People... Um, we we lack a zeal in the church um, 
and are unwilling to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations because the enemy has robbed us of this truth. Like the enemy has been working in our generation to try to rob this from us, that there are eternal consequences for not knowing Jesus, for not giving our lives to him, for not receiving the forgiveness of sins. Uh, And we aren't um, bringing this gospel to people who are having an otherwise good life. Like, I think that sometimes, like, we think about the benefits of our salvation, and it is the thing that's, like, the most, uh, like, it's the most important reason is because of God's glory and God's beauty. But at the same time, it's important to emphasize the consequences of not knowing Jesus because we need to know that we're not bringing this message to them, that they can know God to people who are otherwise, like, in good position. And Ephesians 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so scripture paints a a dreary picture for people who don't um, know Jesus, who haven't come into relationship with him. And so we need to have that sobriety in us, in this world. We need to walk with that knowledge. We need to have that touch our hearts on a daily basis. Um, we are in a season of grace. We know this. Like we're in this season where God is longing to pour out his spirit on sinners. He's longing to pour out his grace upon people who have rebelled against him. Uh, but it's clear that we have a 70, 80-year internship on this earth at most. And like eternity is pressing down upon the hearts of men and beckoning them to come and receive the free gift of God's grace. The God of the Bible has great zeal for righteousness and a complete commitment to judge sin. So this isn't a popular truth in our generation, but it says in Hebrews 9.27 that people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And so it's, it's clear. I know that like as I'm perusing social media and blogging and different things like that, there are an abundance of teachers who preach contrary to this. And I'm troubled by it. I'm troubled by the lack of sobriety of it. And so we have a we have a we have a choice like we can dig into this book and like face who God is, who the God that we're going to see for eternity or like we can believe people who are on social media. And so I just say that like the people who wrote this book died for the testimony of what they're writing. And we have people who are boldly like on social media and in the media and different things like that saying that God doesn't judge and they're sitting behind computers, but these people like went to the stake for the message that they proclaimed for what they witnessed in real time. And so I just, I just plead with you today to really dig into the Bible and see what it says about um, who God is and, and not just form cultural opinions. So Hebrews two says, uh, we must pay the most careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away for since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to us by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So I know that one thing that we want to shy away from is, is seeing Jesus as this uh, one that we go to because we want to escape hell. Like, it's not like we're going to approach Jesus on that day and say, 
you know, is either hell or you, Jesus, I guess, you know, you're the best alternative. Like God is far more glorious and far more worthy than that type of testimony when we meet him. But at the same time, I don't want to be above Jesus. Like Jesus used fear of punishment to compel people who are in blindness and in darkness to sober up. Like in in Luke 16, it talks about Jesus talks about um, the rich man who didn't respond to Lazarus in his time of need. And so that the rich man was cast into a place where there was an eternal chasm that was impassable and he was in agony. And so Jesus himself all throughout the New Testament and even in the book of Revelation, it paints a clear picture that he preached an eternal judgment. He preached an eternal separation from God for those who don't receive the gospel. And so if you're here today and you don't know God, if you don't have a personal relationship with him, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, the reality is that you have taken the things that he has given you out of his joy and used them to do things that are contrary to his heart. He has desired to show you his goodness through your trust and his leadership, but you have rebelled against him. He has desired nearness with you and a loving relationship, but you have chosen independence. And this is the nature of sin. Like what we do and different things like that, that's the fruit of sin. But the nature of sin is that we've taken the very things that are precious to God and his desire to relate with us, and we've, we've cast them aside. And so this is what I just want to present to you today. And I just want to put, us, put it before us to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to um, bring a zeal for the lost, to bring a brokenness for the lost. And the second point I want to make about evangelism and why it's essential and why it exists. Evangelism exists because of God's humility. So I love this thought <laughs> that God is so humble that he would come and do what he did on the cross. And so John 21, I want us to look there. This is a, a longer scripture passage. Simon Peter Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net, and because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples from Jesus loves. Um, I'll try that again. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "It is the Lord." As soon as Simon Peter heard him, he said, "It is the Lord." He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had not, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed him in the boat, towing the net of, full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed. They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And so this is an account of Jesus after his resurrection. And it's the first account where uh, Peter interacting with Jesus is very visible in the scriptures. And so Peter had just denied the Lord. Peter is the one who's like zealous, zealous to be faithful and loyal to Jesus. But he just like completely re- uh, rejected Jesus in the, in the face of uh, pressure from uh, the culture. 
And so we have Jesus who had just like came out of the grave with his best friends rejecting him. And he comes out on shore with fish, um, like with a, a fire waiting to have a meal with his disciples. So I just love this scripture and what it shows us about God's heart. So I was a big fan of IU basketball growing up, and I loved Bobby Knight. <laughs> so, um, and Bobby Knight was like renowned for never going on recruiting trips to try to bring in the best high school players to play for his team because his attitude was is that he was so good a coach that no matter what the quality of the players that he had on his team, he still thought he'd win a national championship. So it's like the ultimate like version of pride. He was a prideful man. And so contrast this with Jesus. You know, Jesus knows the end from the beginning. He knows like what's his. He knows the joy of the Father. He knows the like the perfection of being in the beloved of God. Like he is full of joy and full of every good thing. And and he sees a world that's rebelled against him. And and what does he do? He does everything. <laughs> he he like becomes a man, you know, and he pursues sinners. There's nothing more beautiful in the scriptures than Jesus coming up to someone who's completely like thrown their life away and coming and restoring that person. And to me and to you and others, he sent people with his heart, with humility that have said, like, you have not given God what's his and he's calling you back to himself. Not because he needs you, but because he desires you, because he loves you. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, like that's his heart towards you. You know, we have all rejected the Lord in our own way. But the good news is this, that the humility of God makes a way for us. And what Jesus did on the cross allows us to come back to him. So God has great delight in evangelism. What is God's heart when he sees an unbeliever breathe? Like when he ordains the next breath of an unbeliever, what's in his heart? What's in his heart when he ordains the next heartbeat of someone who's cursing him? Like what's in his heart when he commands the sun to rise over Syria in an ISIS uh, camp? Like tremendous mercy. Like the Lord is longing to see people turn in and be saved. In Second Peter 3, 9, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is God's heart. God has great delight in evangelism. If you were a father or a mother and you had an estranged child, a child that had turned their back on you or run away or hated you, what would be in your heart for someone who would go to that child and restore relationship back with you? Like that's God's heart for evangelism. He sees like people out there like his sons and his daughters that don't know him, that have returned their backs on him and rejected him, and his heart aches, his heart longs for them to return. And the call of the evangelist is friendship with Jesus to go and care what's important to his heart and to bring people back to him. And that's what he's inviting us into today. So evangelism is something that we're all called to like join in. Where everyone can play. We have been given the Great Commission as part of the great universal body called the church. There is no greater task in the world, nor there is any more noble task. The tip of the arrow to the Great Commission is the gospel message. It is a great treasure that God has given us to taste and see and enjoy and share with the world. It is very precious both to the Lord and to those who have tasted it without any merit of their own. For those who believe in Jesus and turn their lives to, to him, we can proclaim that his death on the cross has paid for our sin and his burial has buried our old man, that we can come free of any patterns that have held us down. And his re- resurrection empowers us to live a new life. And his ascension 
gives us access to the throne of God, the throne of grace now for the believer, and that he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, and we can walk and talk with him on a daily basis. We should hold this message with great joy and expectation, but with also great fear and trembling. I want to give Mark 4 as um, a highlight, as something that I believe holds some keys for us to steward the message of the gospel well. I believe Mark 4 is a great uh, discipleship training chapter. And so if you'll turn to Mark 4, we're going to stay in this for a while. So Mark 4 is talking about how to steward Revelation well. So starting in verse 13, Then Jesus said to him, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the world is sown, where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like the seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So we have a treasure that, that this message of salvation and our relationship with Jesus, um, we have to treasure this much more than all other rivals and give it much closer attention than our greatest concerns in this world, including those who we feel are most responsible for. Do we give more uh, value to family or the Great Commission? So this is something that's brought up a lot. So I believe that that's, that's not the right question. So we give our devotion to Jesus, and Jesus helps us sort it out. Like he helps us give proper value to the Great Commission. He helps us give proper value to our families. Jesus cares about our families, and he cares about us prioritizing the Great Commission. Um, so when we give this message, this is our encouragement, that we will be rejected. <laughs> so Jesus, pretty good evangelist. But he says that there were four responses to him sowing word, his word, sowing his seed. So we shouldn't be discouraged when we're rejected. So if you share the gospel with one out of 20 people, uh, I mean, you share the gospel with 20 people and one receives the word. Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> so just to say. So if you get rejected 19 times, that's pretty discouraging. But how many people does one person represent? You know, if I share the gospel with Randy Gooder back in the 60s and, uh, <laughs> and he receives the word and he repents and he turns to Jesus and he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, how many people does that account for? You know what I mean? That's pretty good multiplication. See what I'm saying? And so don't get discouraged by the numbers. Like what we do matters. Like that one person matters a ton. It multiplies. If we pray for 100 people, and one gets healed. How many times does Jesus get praise? Like every time that person walks up the stairway. It's his inheritance. It's not about our reception. And so, um, continuing on in Mark 4, 21 through 25. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. 
Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. And so this is a scripture that shows about how a believer is to steward revelation. Okay, so God's word is sown into the hearts of the people. So that can be a number of things. Let's say, you know, some of us, God has given revelation about healing, the importance of healing. But I would, be say, I would say it's safe to say that God has given all of us a revelation about how to be saved. That's revelation that we're all to steward. That's revelation that we're all to, on a daily basis to walk in and to, to preach to ourselves. And so this scripture talks about that the measure that we use, more will be given. And what we don't use, it will be taken away. So when we don't use revelation, the nature of it is that it goes away. And when we share it, that's the nature of discipleship as well. And so we're supposed to receive the word of God. We're supposed to treasure the word of God above all rivals. We're supposed to use the word of God. We're supposed to preach the word of God to ourselves. And we're supposed to share it with others and put it to use. And so the nature of discipleship is that we assimilate what we have revelation of through our lives and we share it with others. To continue to grow in revelation of who God is and in order to grow as a disciple of Jesus, we must treasure the revelation that he has given us. Then when we apply it to our lives, preach it to ourselves, and then finally share it with others. As we do this, we will be continually blessed with more revelation of the glory of knowing God. Essential to growing in grace and glory is to share and proclaim it with others. The lamp finds its purpose when it finds a place that would otherwise be dark. And so when we have the revelation of salvation, that, that message is not to just be shared within the body, but it's, it's ordained for us to take it out in the world. This is why evangelism is for everyone. We all have revelation of salvation if we're in Jesus. We're all called to steward that revelation in our hearts and treasure it. And we're all called to proclaim it to everyone that we come in contact with or who God leads us to. So I want to show... Uh, a clip and this um, is just one that I saw during YWAM and I was like wow not necessarily how to approach evangelism but I think it highlights the importance of um, what it is to steward and treasure revelation and share it with others and so Mike you can go ahead and play that a number of years ago in a Baptist church in Crystal Palace in southern London, the Sunday morning service was closing and a stranger stood up at the back, raised his hand, he said, excuse me, pastor, can I share a little testimony? The pastor looked at his watch, he said, you've got three minutes. And this man proceeded, he said, I just moved into this area, I used to live in another part of London, I came from Sydney in Australia, and just a few months back I was visiting some relatives, and I was walking down George Street. You know where George Street is in Sydney? It runs from the business hub out to the rocks, the colonial area. And he said, a strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand, and he said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I was astounded by those words. Nobody had ever told me that. I thanked him courteously, and all the way on British Airlines, back to Heathrow, this puzzled me. I called a friend who lived in this new area, where I'm living now, and thank God he was a Christian. He led me to Christ. And I'm a Christian and I want a fellowship here. And Baptists love testimonies like it. Everyone applauded and welcomed him into the fellowship. That Baptist pastor flew to Adelaide in Australia the next week. And ten days later, in the middle of a three-day series in a Baptist church in Adelaide, a woman came to him for counseling. and He wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. And she said, I used to live in Sydney. And just a couple of months back, I was visiting friends in Sydney, doing some last-minute shopping down George Street, and a strange little white-haired man, elderly man, stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, ma'am, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? 
She said, I was disturbed by those words. When I got back to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block from me, and I sought out the pastor, and he led me to Christ. So, sir, I'm telling you that I am a Christian. Now, this London pastor was now very puzzled. Twice, within a fortnight, he'd heard the same testimony. He then flew to preach in the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Perth. And when his teaching series was over, the senior elder of that church took him out for a meal. And he said, mate, how'd you get saved? He said, I grew up in this church from the age of 15 through Boys Brigade. Never made a commitment to Jesus, just hopped on the bandwagon like everybody else. And because of my business ability, grew up to a place of influence. I was on a business outing in Sydney just three years ago. And an obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a stop shop doorway, offered me a religious pamphlet, cheap junk, and accosted me with a question. Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. He said, I was seething with anger all the way home on Qantas to, to Perth. He said, I told my pastor, thinking he would sympathize with me, and my pastor agreed. He had been disturbed for years, knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and he was right. And my pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. Now, this London preacher flew back to the UK and was speaking at the Keswick Convention in the Lake District. And he threw in these three testimonies. At the close of his teaching session, four elderly pastors came up and said, we got saved between 25 and 35 years ago, respectively, through that little man on George Street giving us a tract and asking us that question. He then flew the following week to a similar Keswick Convention in the Caribbean, to missionaries. And he shared the testimonies. At the close of his teaching session, three missionaries came up and said, we got saved between 15 and 25 years ago, respectively, through that little man's testimony and asking us that same question on George Street in Sydney. Coming back to London, he stopped outside Atlanta, Georgia, to speak at a naval chaplain's convention. And when his three days of revving these naval chaplains up, over a thousand of them, in soul winning, the chaplain general took him out for a meal. And he said, how do you become a Christian? He said, well, it was miraculous. I was a rating on a United States battleship, and I lived a reprobate life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific, and we docked in Sydney Harbour for replenishments. We hit King's Cross with a vengeance. I got blind drunk. I got on the wrong bus, got off in George Street. And <laughs> as I got off the bus, I thought it was a ghost. This elderly, white-haired man jumped in front of me, pushed a pamphlet in my hand, and said, Sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, you're going to heaven. He said, the fear of God hit me immediately. I was shocked sober and ran back to the battleship, sought out the chaplain. The chaplain led me to Christ. And I soon began to prepare for the ministry under his guidance. And here I am in charge of over a thousand chaplains and we're bent on soul winning today. That London preacher, six months later, flew to do a convention for 5,000 Indian missionaries in a remote corner of northeastern India. And at the end... The Indian missionary in charge, a humble little man, took him home to his humble little home for a simple meal. And he said, how did you, as a Hindu, come to Christ? He said, I was in a very privileged position. I worked for the Indian diplomatic mission. And I traveled the world. And I am so glad for the forgiveness of Christ and his blood covering my sin, because I'd be very embarrassed if people found out what I got into. He said, one bout of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. And I was doing some last-minute shopping laden with parcels of toys and clothing for my children, walking down George Street. And this courteous little white-haired man stepped out in front of me, offered me a pamphlet, and said, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I thanked him very much, but this disturbed me. 
I got back to my town, I sought out the Hindu priest and he couldn't help me. But he gave me some advice. He said, just to satisfy your curious mind, nothing else, go and talk to the missionary in the mission house at the end of the road. And that was fatal advice. He said, because that day the missionary led me to Christ, I quit Hinduism immediately and then began to study for the ministry. I left the diplomatic service and here I am by God's grace in charge of all these missionaries and we are winning hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. Well, eight months later, that Crystal Palace Baptist pastor was ministering in Sydney, in Gymea, southern suburb of Sydney. And he said to the Baptist minister, do you know a little man, an elderly little man who witnesses and hands out tracts on George Street? And he said, I do. His name is Mr. Genor, G-E-N-O-R. But I don't think he does it anymore. He's too frail and elderly. The man said, I want to meet him. Two nights later, they went around to this little apartment, knocked on the door, and this tiny, frail little man opened the door. He sat them down, made them some tea, and he was so frail, he was slopping tea into the saucer as he shook. And as he sat with them, this London preacher told him all these accounts over the previous three years. This little man sat with tears running down his cheeks. He said, my story goes like this. He said, I was a rating on an Australian warship, and I lived a reprobate life, and in a crisis, I really hit the wall, and one of my colleagues, whom I gave literal hell, was there to help me. He led me to Jesus, and the change in my life was night to day in 24 hours, and I was so grateful to God, I promised God that I would share Jesus in a simple witness with at least 10 people a day. As God gave me strength, sometimes I was ill, I couldn't do it, but I made up for it for other times. I wasn't paranoid about it, but I have done this for over 40 years, and in my retirement years, the best place was on George Street. There were hundreds of people. I got lots of rejections, but a lot of people courteously took the tracks. And he said, in 40 years of doing this, I've never heard of one single person coming to Jesus until today. You know, I would say, that has to be commitment. That has to be just sheer gratitude and love for Jesus to do that, not hearing of any results. Margarita did a little count. That's 146,100 people. That simple little non-charismatic Baptist man influenced somehow to Jesus. And I believe what God was showing that Baptist minister was the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip of this iceberg. Goodness knows how many more had been arrested for Christ and were doing huge jobs out in the mission field. Mr. Genor died two weeks later. And can you imagine the reward he went home to in heaven? I doubt if his face would ever have appeared on Charisma magazine. I doubt if there would ever have been a write-up with a photograph in Billy Graham's Decision magazine, as beautiful as those magazines are. Nobody except a little group of Baptists in southern Sydney knew about Mr. Genor, but I'll tell you his name was famous in heaven. Heaven knew Mr. Genor, and you can imagine the welcome and the red carpet and the fanfare he went home to when he arrived in glory. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> awesome. Don't you love like the wink from heaven at the end of this man's life from the Lord? From the Lord, like he had no clue he was bearing fruit in his life. And uh, I think one of the things that that video shows me is that it's not on our shoulders. You know, he proclaimed a simple message. He treasured the message in his heart. He proclaimed a simple message. It might or not, might or might not be the message that we should proclaim in this hour. You know, you you need to go to the Lord and ask that. But the thing is, is we don't have the power to tra- change a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. All that's required of us is obedience. Like the fruit is in the hands of the Lord. 
And so uh, I just wanted to end here with Mark 4, um, the parable of the mustard seed. And I believe it's highlighted through this video, starting in verse 30. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. And so this is just my encouragement for us as a community today is to not not despise weakness of going up to someone and sharing what God's done in your heart, to be a witness to people who don't know God. It's going to be worth it. So I just want to just take some time here before the Holy Spirit. I want to here in a second, I want to invite Jeff up and uh, I just want you to ask the Lord, God, how am I to respond in light of the world's need, in light of your humility and your desire for the lost God, and in light of the power of the gospel to change and transform societies? How do you want me to respond? And so, Holy Spirit, I just invite you to speak to us today. I just leave the fruit in your hands, God. Just ask you to work in the hearts of your people. Just ask the Lord, even five people that he would put on your heart to begin praying for and to come up with, ask the Lord for a strategy to reach them. Jesus, we just say that you're working salvation all throughout the earth. God, your kingdom is advancing mightily all throughout the earth. God, we want to jump on this train. God, we say the kingdom of God is advancing. The lost are saved. The broken are healed. Those who are blind see the glory of God all throughout the earth today, God. All throughout the states, God. We love you, Jesus. Jeff, you can come.